Hello, my name is Andreas Bachmeier. I'm doing my doctoral studies here in the laboratory of Professor Fraser Armstrong in the Inorganic Chemistry Laboratory at the University of Oxford. When you look into how fossil fuels were actually made, you will realize that sunlight is the key. Basically, all of the fossil fuels we are burning today originally stem from sunlight. Nature is utilizing solar energy to convert it into chemical energy for more than two and a half billion years now in a process we call photosynthesis. I'm trying to do photosynthesis artificially in the laboratory. The goal is to make combustible fuels by only using sunlight, water and carbon dioxide. So before we can make artificial photosynthesis happen in the lab, we first of all need to understand how nature is doing it. Nature is using biomolecules like chlorophyll which gives leaves the green color. By absorbing sunlight, chlorophyll is generating electrical charges, namely electrons and vacancies, which we call holes. Electrons are then shuttled away from the reaction center very quickly. They are stored as so-called hydrogen equivalents. Basically, protons from water and the electrons are combined and stored in molecules we call NADPH. Later in the reaction cycle, they are then used to reduce carbon dioxide and prepare sugar molecules in what we call the Calvin cycle. The hole that is left from the light absorption process is then transferred to the oxygen evolving complex. This splits water into oxygen and protons. So the overall process is activation of CO2 and water to produce oxygen and sugar molecules. So we consume carbon dioxide and water and release oxygen and sugar. However, although plants are very beautifully engineered biological systems, the overall efficiency is very low, usually of about 1 to 2% for typical crop plants. The problem with living, thing, living things in general is that living things use the energy to live and not to produce fuels for us. Plants, for example, can't use high-energy UV light because it would damage their cell material. Also, plants constantly need to repair themselves, which again consumes energy. So our idea is to make a more robust and less complicated artificial system that wouldn't be restricted anymore by these efficiency limitations of biological systems. We can still learn a, lot, a great deal from nature though. The initial processes of light absorption and separation into electrical charges are still very efficient because they are optimized through uh, many years through evolution. But the general idea is to not only mimic nature and copy its processes, we need to radically improve upon it. So what would an artificial device look like? This slide here illustrates the basic components we need in an artificial photosynthetic system in a very simplified manner. Basically, we need three different components. One component that does what chlorophyll is doing, that means absorbing the light and generating charges. We can use so-called semiconductor materials to do this job. Semiconductors are materials that absorb electrons and put them into the excited state, that is the so-called conduction bands, and leave behind a hole in the ground state, that is the valence band. Semiconductors are used, for example, in photovoltaics on solar panels on house rooms where they are used to convert solar energy into electricity. This is already a very, very well established process but the problem is that we cannot store electricity properly on a large scale. This is why converting it into storable fuels directly is so attractive. A common semiconductor is titanium dioxide. This is a white powder you can see here. 
that is non-toxic, we use it widely in wall paint, for example. The problem, as we can see from its white color, is that it doesn't absorb visible light, it only absorbs UV light. So in order to harness as much light as possible, we need to modify it, or what we call sensitize it. We use, for instance, molecular dye complexes we synthesize in our laboratories. This solution shows a dye we call a ruthenium sensitizer, and by attaching this dye on the titanium particles, we can actually harness as much sunlight as possible. Now that we've harnessed the light, we need to use its energy to make some fuels. Unfortunately, these reactions are very complicated and do not happen spontaneously or unassisted. We need what we call multi-electron catalysts to make these reactions happen. On the one hand, we need a so-called water oxidation catalyst that uses four holes from the semiconductor to use two molecules of water and eventually make one molecule of oxygen. On the other side, we need catalysts that can either use two electrons from the semiconductor conduction band to make hydrogen, or even further, that can perhaps activate even six electrons and use them to re reduce carbon dioxide directly into methanol. This would be my personal dream reaction. It is very complicated, but methanol is a liquid that we can use directly to power our cars, so we wouldn't need to establish a new hydrogen infrastructure. During the last couple of years, researchers have made the first catalyst that can actually carry out these reactions. The problem is that they are either very inefficient, very slow, or they are made of very precious and expensive materials, metals like platinum or iridium. Iridium is one of the least abundant metals in the Earth's crust. So what we need to do, we need to find catalysts that are made of cheap and scalable materials. Fortunately, these catalysts do exist. They are biomolecules we call enzymes. A disadvantage of these enzymes is that they are very intricate and delicate molecules, so we will never be able to use them on a very large scale. However, they perform tremendously well. They can produce up to thousands of fuel molecules per second. And the active sites that do the actual transformations are only made of cheap and abundant materials like iron or nickel. So I'm studying how these catalysts work and why they work so well. But I'm also incorporating them into artificial devices. In this way, I can study the very elementary processes or steps from the light absorption to the actual formation of the fuels. Understanding these fundamental steps, I can then look at how to optimize systems, that means increasing the efficiency, but I can also then think of how we could ultimately produce all inorganic, robust and scalable systems. So what do I actually do in the lab? First of all, we have to demonstrate that we can use our enzymes to produce fuels only powered by visible light. So we made several model systems, one of which is shown here. We used titanium dioxide particles, which I've shown before, and attached the ruthenium sensitizers to ensure we absorb as much sunlight as possible. Each titanium particle is about 20 nanometers wide. One nanometer is a millionth of a millimeter and each particle holds about 200 ruthenium molecules. We then attached some enzyme catalysts onto the particles. In this case, we use an enzyme called carbon monoxide dehydrogenase. This can reduce carbon dioxide and converts it into CO, carbon monoxide. This is the first step, a two-electron process in the reduction of CO2 to fuels, and it's the most challenging and most demanding step. At this stage, we use a so-called half system 
we haven't incorporated a water oxidation catalyst in the system yet. Instead, we use what we call sacrificial reagents to drive the reactions. That gives us control over the reactions and help us, helps us to improve the efficiencies. What we did, we placed the reaction mixtures in a vessel and shined light on it over several hours. By looking at the composition of the headspace in the vessel, we were able to monitor that as long as we shine light on the system, CO2 is actually reduced and converted. So we did show that we can actually produce fuel molecules just by using sunlight and our enzyme catalysts. We did similar models which produce hydrogen out of water. Now that I have established that we can actually use our catalysts to produce fuel molecules just by using sunlight as energy source, I looked into the interplay between the light absorber and the catalyst in more detail. One reason why the overall efficiency of artificial photosynthesis is rather low is because we are trying to activate very stable molecules. Carbon dioxide is a very stable molecule, water is a very stable molecule. We need to put in high activation energies in order to make the catalysts drive the reactions. In our lab, we are in the unique situation that we have very efficient and fast catalysts. This means very little activation energy is needed. One problem in practice though is, when I have a catalyst that needs very little activation energy, it operates at the so-called reversible limit. Reversible limit means that it catalyzes both the forward and the reverse reaction equally. That means I need to find a way to tune it or rectify it in a way that it only catalyzes the forward reaction, the reaction of converting CO2 into fuel molecules we actually want. The way we are trying to do it is to try to engineer the energetics of the catalyst and the light absorber that they are closely matched. We are using semiconductor materials which have energy levels that are closely matched to the potentials at which the catalysts are operating, either conversion of CO2 or hydrogen formation. When we absorb light and operate at a potential negative of the so-called flat band potential of the semiconductor, which is shown here, then the bands of the semiconductor bend downwards and electrons are shuttled very efficiently into the enzyme. That means catalysis can happen very fast. In that way, we can promote the forward reaction. On the other hand, if we were to operate on a potential higher than the so-called flat band potential, the bands of the semiconductor would bend upwards and electron transfer would be restricted. In this way, we can promote the forward reaction by having closely matched potential. That means we don't lose much energy as over potential, but we also restrict the back reaction and create the unidirectionality we need to gain high efficiencies. I'm studying these phenomena by a technique called protein film electrochemistry. Using the same titanium dioxide particles, I made an electrode out of them. It is a very thin film attached on a conducting glass substrate. When I now attach enzyme onto these electrodes, I can directly monitor their catalytic activity as a current in form of a function of the applied potential. As you can see in this figure on the voltammogram, negative currents correspond to CO2 reduction, whereas positive currents correspond to CO oxidation. As you can see on this slide, just by looking at the respective heights of the currents, 
catalytic reduction is way more dominant than catalytic oxidation. So we are actually able to control the forward and back reaction and bias the reaction toward fuel formation. In summary, by using the world's most efficient and best catalysts, we are able to make artificial photosynthetic systems of unmatched efficiencies. The challenge now is to introduce a water oxidation catalyst to make a fully integrated system, a system that can split water to both make oxygen and reduce carbon dioxide to produce fuels.